Hello overinvested listeners, before we get to the main episode I am just popping in with some Patreon news. At the beginning of August, Patreon went through a technical glitch that led to some payouts failing and subscriptions being cancelled without the subscribers knowledge. A lot of Patreon pages got hit a lot worse than us I think, but we do think we lost a handful of subscribers or payments due to the glitch, so if you think that might be you, please check your Patreon account. As always, we are incredibly grateful for all of our Patreon supporters. You guys keep the show running and obviously get access to a bunch of exclusive subscriber episodes and movie commentary tracks, etc. Our next Patreon episode will be a Q&A, by the way, so please submit any questions you'd like Morgan and I to answer. Okay, back to the main episode. Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we are doing a style of episode we do a couple of times a year on Patreon, but this time we are doing it for the main feed. We are discussing books we've read recently and specifically we are focusing on recent releases from the past calendar year because Morgan has read a great deal of ARCs, lots of interesting uh, books, or so I assume, because she has not told me what they are yet. (laughs) We will kind of alternate between reviews of books that we've each read, and I expect they're going to be very varied, as always, because we have very different tastes. (laughs) Yes, so... Obviously, I have not been appearing on the main feed because of my long COVID. As a result, I have been reading a great deal. I always have read a lot since I was, you know, five and learned how to read. But reading is basically the one activity that I've still been able to do pretty much without impediment. So I've been reading a ton. I have read a ton of great books this year, but I have wanted to do this episode to highlight some of the really great books that have come out this year that I was lucky enough to read in advance. We're not discussing these titles in advance of their publication because we got a little behind on the calendar, as is usual. But, you know, within the past few months, these titles came out, and I'm really grateful to the publishers for sending them to me. And if I were feeling better, I would have loved to pitch some articles on them. And we have a couple of more popular books. Um, I read Yellowface, which I'll talk about a little bit later. But a couple of these titles, the first one in particular, definitely did not get a great deal of attention. And I thought they were really fantastic. And obviously, the point of having a podcast is that you can just be like, listen to me, (laughs) listen to the things that I like, I'm going to tell you about them. So The first book I want to highlight, kind of the impetus for this episode, is a book that I read earlier this year called The Disenchantment by Celia Bell. And this is still one of the best books that I've read this year, definitely one of the very best books published this year. And it basically has sort of like been published without a trace as far as I can tell. So I read this before came out and I was just like so excited about it. I recommended it to a bunch of people. You may have seen a post of mine on Instagram about this book and it didn't really get any reviews. And I feel really frustrated by this because I think this book is great. And the premise of this book is so appealing to so many readers and I think particularly listeners of this podcast. So this is basically set around the time of a real life poisoning scandal in the French court um, in the 17th century. This is around the like later end of Louis XIV, the Sun King's reign. There are a few different point of view characters, but it focuses primarily on 
a baroness who's sort of like in the nobility, but not super high up in the nobility. She, they don't live at Versailles. And she has a kind of shitty husband and two young children who she's very devoted to. And she is having this affair with a woman who is more closely related to the king. And she's a bit younger and sort of more important in the nobility. So that is obviously a source of conflict because you we're not allowed to be an out lesbian in 17th century France, but also because of this poisoning scandal, there's all of this sort of conflict around who has power, the threat of women potentially poisoning their husbands. And when this woman's husband does wind up dead, huge amounts of suspicion sort of turn onto her, even though she didn't have anything to do with it. We do know who did have something to do with it. There is also a great sort of servant character who we get the point of view of. So it's not just about the sort of top, top upper classes. Um, and the servant is both kind of loyal to her mistress, but also operating in her own interests. There's a portrait painter who is sort of suspected of having an affair with this woman. And we get a lot of information about him and his art. And this main character's sort of party trick is that she tells incredible folk tales that she makes up off the top of her head. So we see her telling them to her children. We see her telling them in sort of these salons across Paris and the basic thrust of the book is, you know, can she continue to have this relationship with this woman she's in love with while all of these other problems are happening that are sort of threatening that. And I loved this. Part of what I found interesting about it was we've obviously had a bunch of movies that have come out in the past several years that are sort of like historical lesbian stories. And that trend has been criticized somewhat, although there obviously have been great examples like Portrait of a Lady on Fire, where you're just like, this movie is perfect. A couple of years ago, there was an SNL sketch, like making fun of this is like a really overused trope. And I was like, you're satirizing three films. There are literally yeah. only three films and two of them are good. <laughs> so, <laughs> But like that definitely has been a sort of point of discourse, yes, right? Yes, yes. I mean, a lot of people are pissed off and they're like, why are you making sad historical lesbian movies? And it's like, well, I'll keep watching them, so. <laughs> well, this is the thing. I was like, but people like those movies. And this book is so smart about the history. I mean, it sounds great. It feels like anyone who liked Portrait of a Lady on Fire, not that they're that similar, aside from both being set in historical France, would love this book. Like, it's just brilliantly done. Part of what I really liked about it, actually, is that it's not really a romance novel. Like, the romance is an important component, but it's more that, like, these women are queer, they're having this relationship, and all of this other stuff is going on, right? So Celia Bell, the writer, really goes deep into the minds of this woman's servant, and this painter, and then some of these side characters. And you're getting a sense of this, like, whole network around this woman's house, as opposed to it, like, the portrait of a lady on fire is they're like alone on an island, right? Like that's just about the two of them. And in this, she kind of melds some of that romance with this broader historical stuff. And it is clearly so well researched without it feeling like she's like, let me list off a bunch of historical details that I found in my research to like prove to you that I've done that research, which is something I don't like in historical novels. You can just tell that she knows what she's doing. The prose is so good. And something that we've talked about, you know, multiple times on the show, in terms of art made today that takes place in the past is whether you kind of really believe that the people exist in that time or not. Obviously, this is published in 2023, like the author is speculating about that era. But I really don't like books 
where characters are sort of behaving in a current way where you're just like, that's not how people were thinking at that time. It's clearly that like we're projecting our values onto the past. And this book doesn't do that at all. They're clearly behaving according to their own moral code, but in a way that is informed by today in terms of like these women's relationships, like the class stuff that she's looking at that's really interesting the main character and this male painter have a really interesting dynamic that is not romantic, right? But still feels completely plausible in the context of that time. I was just like blown away by it. I read it really fast and it's not super short. And it just feels like a classic case of a book that is so deserving and because of the mechanisms of publishing that only really promote a few big titles a year there's just not enough room for a lot of these other great books and um that's really too bad because i think if people read this they would have such a great time so i'm recommending it to all of our listeners again i feel like if you listen to this podcast you'd probably like this book like it's really i mean it sounds good i think i'm gonna read it yeah i know you don't read literary fiction and this is very literary but it's a historical novel and it just feels like you would get such a kick out of it. It feels like it would be a really good movie, although that's obviously not going to happen because it hasn't been read by a ton of people. Yeah, I studied French in high school and college. And so sort of getting back into that world of like, oh, right, the you know, this is what France was like back in the day. And like remembering some of the literature I read was really fun for me too. But obviously you don't need any of that background. It's just like a really well, well done book. So that is The Disenchantment by Celia Bell. It came out around May. Yeah, I highly recommend checking it out. You can always request it at your library if you don't want to shell out for the hardcover, but um, there are multiple ways to get a hold of this, and I like can't recommend it highly enough, as you can tell. It just feels like such an injustice to me that this you know, isn't a big hit. So that's my first recommendation. I have a couple more than you, but why don't you do one so that the first like yes. 20 minutes of this podcast. <laughs> is it just me talking? <laughs> so my first recommendation is Empire of the Feast by Bendy Barrett. I looked up this author because I hadn't heard of him. It seems like he's a game designer and also predominantly writes self-published erotica. But uh, this is Great. published by Neon Hemlock Press and it does have a lot of sex in it, but it's not romantic or sexy, if you get what I mean. <laughs> it's a sci-fi book, a short sci-fi book about a character who wakes up with no memory having been incarnated as the latest emperor of this fascist space empire. And he is the first male emperor. Usually it is a series of empresses who all retain all of the memories of their previous incarnations. But he is complete amnesiac and is thrust into this very bizarre situation with no one to advise him apart from this weird grand vizier character who's sort of explaining to him what's up. And the world building in this is just like really juicy and interesting because it feels almost anime inspired, but it's also intentionally not particularly hard sci-fi at all because the concept is that this emperor is in charge of like gajillions of planets and is clearly an evil despot with no care for any other person or rather the previous incarnations were and this new guy is just like some guy. (laughs) But the primary (laughs) purpose of this emperor is to be locked into this kind of eternal conflict with an entity that lives within a sun called the rapacious. 
And the way that this entity is beaten back is partly due to the emperor slash empress having this psychic connection fueled by this never-ending orgy in their space palace with all these like courtiers who are just like fucking continuously. (laughs) And I just really loved the way this story unfolded. The main character kind of starts off as this blank slate and then gets a very spiky personality very rapidly because like it's quite a short book and just like the descriptions of the world that he exists in are very evocative and colourful and there's this very fun flirty frenemy ship between him and this evil entity that's trying to consume him and kill everyone in the empire and there's all these sort of backstabbing courtiers and stuff I yeah it was like a really easy read it was dark and kind of fucked up and horny if anything, my only critique was like it wrapped up too easily. I could have had it be more fucked up. But um, yeah, Empire of the <laughs> Feast by Bendy Barrett. This reminds me a bit of the Emperor situation in Foundation, the Apple TV <laughs> show, which I've been catching up on the the new episodes of that. Which, yeah, I, I like, didn't they finish season one, and I really enjoyed season one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there were a bunch of different strands in that, and the writing is kind of all over the place, and that definitely is hard sci-fi, but the Lee Pace character plays an emperor who was, like, constantly being reincarnated, so that, or, like, I mean, it's very scientific on the show, but, yeah, that, the concept of, like, taking (laughs) this, like, massive fascist empire, and then being like, let's just tweak that and (laughs) put a normal man in, that's very, very entertaining to me. Also seems like a combination of like the foundation situation and venom based on what you're describing (laughs) so like two great cops there i mean that's what more could you ask for Uh, (laughs) as always our recommendations could not be more different from each other because i'm going to move to like a sally rooney type book from (laughs) ireland now so this book unlike the last one i mentioned has been doing pretty well i think uh is called the rachel incident by caroline o'donohue and i read the galley a few months ago I think I read it in basically one day. Like, I was just completely caught up in it. I just loaned that galley to a friend of mine, and she also read it in, I think, under 36 hours, because she texted me and she was like, I'm already done with the book. And I was like, yeah, it's really good. So this is very much being compared to Sally Rooney. I have compared it to Sally Rooney when I, like, recommend it to people, and I think that there's a good reason for that, but it also is, like, the prose is pretty different. The comparisons that makes sense are it is set in Cork in Ireland in, I believe, 2010. Um, So if you are pretty much exactly in our age demographic, there is a lot of sort of millennial cultural references, even though we're obviously not Irish, but still like (laughs) there was a lot of stuff in there that I was like, oh, I'm being taken back to college because the protagonists are college students um, or that age. So there's sort of this backdrop of the recession and just the feeling of kind of not knowing what to do with yourself, which I think a lot of people sort of our age and younger and also older can relate to. But the main character is this young woman named Rachel. She's finishing up her college degree in English and basically is aimless. She doesn't know what she wants to do with herself and there are no jobs anyway. And she winds up befriending um, this other clerk at the bookstore where she works, whose name is James, who is gay and closeted. And they develop this like very codependent best friendship. And, she has an older male professor who she kind of has a crush on, but what winds up happening is that her roommate, James, winds up having an affair with this professor, so it kind of turns the, like, trope of the 
young female undergraduate sleeping with her professor sort of on an axis because instead it's this young guy and the professor is also closeted. He is married to a woman and Rachel winds up sort of working for this woman. And there's this like entire messy entanglement because she obviously knows that this relationship is happening. Eventually the professor finds out that she knows. And so she's kind of implicated in terms of like having to keep these secrets, but it's not actually her relationship. Meanwhile, she is also embarking on this romance with this guy she's met who's kind of a flake. She's also kind of a flake. And so you have these kind of like parallel tracks going. And also, of course, this relationship between her and her best friend that for a long time is really life sustaining and then becomes a little bit unhealthy. Like they can't quite be honest with each other because they're too close to each other and some of their other relationships are not working in a great way. And there's also stuff about abortion in Ireland at this time in the book. But what I think makes it work so well is that it's just, in addition to being incredibly sort of smartly observed about how people behave, like I totally was reading it being like, I remember having friendships like this in college that are like, really fun, but kind of like too close or the relationship between like a woman and a gay man who are friends is like, I felt incredibly sort of like familiar to me reading this. It's just like a really fun book. <laughs> and most literary fiction is not super fun. I would say this is kind of like borderline between literary fiction, and whatever women's fiction is now. But it's written really, really well, which is why it gets put in the sort of literary fiction category. Yeah, I just, like, as an adult, rarely have the experience of reading a book where I'm just like, I just can't put this down. I just want to read it all day. And I'm someone who loves to read, right? Like, I often will spend a long time reading a book, but not because I just have this urgent need to keep reading it and find out what's going to happen. And I totally felt that with this. It's a little bit difficult to talk about because it's not like there's a ton of plot, although there are lots of sort of, like, little bits of drama happening between all these different characters, but it's all about the interpersonal relationships. It's not like there are big things happening. But it's so smart. It's so funny. And ultimately, I think really, like emotionally sensitive about being exactly that age and kind of having to grow up a little bit. And yeah, I just really, really loved it. I think, again, I think it's doing pretty well, because it's a really good book. And sort of at contrast to the um, Celia Bell book that I was talking about, which is a debut and is a fantastic debut. Caroline O'Donoghue had published a couple other books for adults in the UK and Ireland that hadn't been published here. She had a YA trilogy that I don't know very much about. This feels like a sort of older model of publishing that is how it should still work, but rarely does, where like, someone's clearly talented, you let them write a couple of books. And then once they've written a few books, or in her case, I think five other books, then they write one that's like a total home run right? And does really well, because you've invested in someone's talent. But that doesn't happen very often anymore. And I mean, I read her first book after reading this, and it was not nearly as good, which is normal, right? Like, that, that's how art works that you're going to improve. I just made the connection that I was Twitter mutuals with this woman for years. I think she must have deleted her account. But like, I saw those books that get published. Yes, I believe that you and several of our mutual friends and she were at the same wedding at some point. Yeah. Uh, I was not at this wedding. I do not know this person. This is a clean recommendation. I am not in any way biased or partial here. The world is small, though. So that, again, is The Rachel Incident by Caroline O'Donoghue. And I will do a second one now, because I have a few more than you. So the other 
novel I've got besides Yellow Face, which I think I'm going to do at the end, is much less commercially accessible than that one. But I also thought it was really fantastic. So if you're in the mood for something a little more literary or esoteric, this book is called Reproduction by Louisa Hall, who I hadn't really heard of before reading this book, but she apparently wrote, she has another novel called Trinity that is about Robert Oppenheimer. So she is timely timely (laughs) right now. Yeah, I'm dying to read that. So as you would expect from the title, Reproduction, this is about pregnancy and childbirth. And it's very auto-fictional. It feels like a lot of it is pretty much a memoir, although obviously I don't have access to her inner thoughts or life, so I don't know the degree to which that's the case. Um, There's sort of reflections about some of her earlier adult life living in Texas, and then these various attempts to get pregnant, and an eventual successful pregnancy and childbirth. And she has this sort of frame narrative, I guess you could say, where she's trying to write a novel about Mary Shelley, and eventually instead is writing about Mary Shelley and Frankenstein in the context of these pregnancies. And then the second half of the book is her kind of running into an old friend, and I assume this part is more made up, who had had these series of bad relationships, and the friend is a scientist, and has like gene edited one of her own embryos to implant in her body. And so there's this parallel, right, obviously, between Frankenstein and this in terms of like, Frankenstein is a novel about childbirth, actually, but then also where scientific experimentation and inquiry goes too far. And like when we have to stop and sort of consider what we're doing, it makes sense that she wrote a book about Oppenheimer, because all these things are kind of thematically salient and connected to each other. But it's not as though she's writing like essays about these questions. It's really straightforwardly described in terms of like her experience of, you know, miscarriage and all this stuff. And I found that part of the book where she's just talking about having miscarriages or um, there's a, a form of miscarriage, I can't remember the term, where basically like the fetus doesn't fully come out of the body and instead kind of like hardens and calcifies inside the womb. And the doctors have to do a dilation and cutterage to get the material out so that a, nothing goes wrong in there, and also so that you can become pregnant again, if that is what you want to do. And, of course, that's the kind of procedure that, like, how legal is that in a lot of states now, right? A lot of the stuff that she is going through, she has an emergency one at some point, and it's impossible not to think reading about this, and she makes comments about this in her book, that if she were having this medical emergency now in many parts of the United States, like, she would be totally screwed. And I had read a couple other books earlier this year around the time when I was reading this from sort of the mid 20th century, where female authors were really candid in describing their experiences of pregnancy and childbirth. And I still find it like an incredibly radical thing to do, even though, of course, it's a much less sort of like scandalous topic now. I mean, some of this, all these older books was really, were really written at a time where it wasn't acceptable to talk about that stuff yeah. publicly. I mean, it's and not now, scandalous, but it is taboo. Exactly. And it's interesting, obviously, like we're not people who have had children. and I don't really have friends who've had kids. And I think that certainly like among, you know, women who have, a lot of this stuff is more discussed. But when you see it on a page, just like laid out very clearly, the writing in this book is very 
kind of like straightforward and almost unemotional in a way that I think is actually really effective because she's just describing the stuff that is happening to her. And when you're describing these like pregnancy complications or describing childbirth when she does have a successful pregnancy in like very straightforward terms without sort of resorting to metaphor, right, to escape from some of the pain or biological sort of gruesomeness of that. It's just like a shocking thing that our bodies do, you know? Yeah. Um, (laughs) And I just found this book really, really bracing in that way. And then also the questions of like, when is it okay to sort of make these decisions on behalf of our offspring? And also the question of like the character in the second half who's making these gene editing decisions, like she doesn't have a husband and she's getting into her 40s. And these questions of like, what motivates women in those cases and the like real emotional desperation that a lot of people feel, I think is really well rendered. But also she's kind of like balancing all these things in both hands, right? In terms of like, this character is really sympathetic in some ways, and then also making decisions where you're kind of like, oh, I don't think that that's great. And uh, yeah, I just thought it was incredibly smart and interesting. Not as light as the Rachel incident, maybe not like a great bee tree, but it's pretty short. It's not a long book at all. I'm um, just like 200 pages. That is Reproduction by Louisa Hall. I've just thought about this book a lot since reading it, which is the most that I can ask for from a novel. So yeah, what is your next recommendation? My next one is easily my favorite new book that I've read this year. It is All the Horses in Iceland by Sarah Tolmy, who is a medievalist and English professor and extensively published poet. It's a historical book written in the style of a Norse saga. And it has this interesting framing device where, for the most part, it reads kind of in this poetic style with very short, well-formed sentences, but it also has interjections from a Christian scribe who is transcribing the story and translating it 300 years later. It also reminded me a lot of a beloved author who was formative for me. And I was very interested to see that the New York Times review by Amal El-Motar also compared it to her. Naomi Mitchison, who was a early 20th century, very prolific Scottish fantasy novelist and leftist fiction novelist. She also wrote some sci-fi and I have a distant connection to her because my grandmother was her housekeeper. So I went to her 100th <laughs> birthday. <laughs> an early, an early uh, favourite author for me. But she wrote several books that were kind of in a similar style to this in that it's kind of very poetically phrased literary historical fiction that's also kind of embedded in this style of storytelling that we would think of as fantasy because it has this mindset where magic and kind of shamanic rationales are very close to the surface of the way the characters view the world. So this one is described by the publisher and on the book blurb as like an origin story for all the horses of Iceland. But what it really is, is the story of a young horse trader who through circumstance winds up leaving his ship from Iceland and ends up on Europe and travels across Central Asia, across the steppes and um, ends up kind of with this group of horse traders. And another thing that I find interesting about this is that um, in our last Patreon episode where we were discussing books, I gave a very hearty recommendation for Gentleman of the Road by Michael Chabon, which is a very fun historical adventure novel about two Jewish bandits who are traveling across Central Asia and get embroiled in this very Byzantine 
conflict among the rulers of Khazaria in southwest Russia. And I read this book and I was like, wait, we're back in Khazaria. <laughs> so I was like, somehow in the course of like three months, I managed to read two historical novels that are about like a pretty niche topic by pure coincidence. But I was like, my knowledge is really building up here. I'm learning a lot. <laughs> but yeah, I I just found this so fruitful and fun to read. The main character is highly amusing. He's this very pragmatic figure who has this completely practical and straightforward way of viewing the world while also 100% believing in magic because magic exists because it's, you know, the year 300 or something. (laughs) And he just goes on all these kind of journeys that are heavily involved in horses. And I will not spoil any more of the plot, but it was just tremendously well written and very pleasurable to read and also highly educational because this writer has an exceptional vocabulary. So I kept looking up words. Obviously there were a lot of words in Icelandic where I was just like, I'm not going to bother with that or whatever, (laughs) or like medieval Mongolian, like I'm not going to know. But um, I learned a lot. So yeah, All the Horses of Iceland by Sarah Tolmy. I'm definitely going to put that on my list because that sounds great. And I love books that have that format of like footnotes from someone who's like inter- posing their reading yeah and it's like and it's a it's a christian scribe so he's very disapproving (laughs) yes of course okay i have a nonfiction book to recommend and this is one is called the country of the blind a memoir at the end of sight by andrew leland i absolutely love this i really am bummed that i didn't have the sort of energy to pitch something about this because i was just completely taken with it there was another sort of interesting disability memoir that came out in the spring called Leg by Greg Marshall. And I kind of wanted to write something about both of them. But um, that book, which I also would recommend, is kind of like funny, entertaining memoir about like coming out and also having this disability. And anyway, that's not the book I'm talking about, but it was it was good. And this one is way more of a like journalistic inquiry into what it means to be blind in America, while also combining this person's personal story so he has a condition he has a condition called retinitis pigmentosa which is known as rp which is basically like a slow deterioration of sight over like many many years and part of what's interesting about that from a kind of disability point of view is that it's not like you wake up one day and are like i'm blind now right like i can't see anything it is gradual and So there's a lot of interesting stuff in the book about sort of like reckoning with the idea of disability as an identity and any blindness as an identity, because within the community, there are sort of these hierarchies of people who are like, well, you can, you can still see a decent amount, like, you know, versus the people who are completely blind and can't see anything. But he kind of sets out to write this book in an effort to understand his own experience and to kind of reconcile with it. I think he's in his 40s and this had started in in his 20s and it sort of has been gradually progressing. And I think he's legally blind by the point where he's writing this, but still is convincing himself that he can get around fine over the course of the book. It's like, actually, I should probably use a cane and is learning all of these other methods of coping. So one of the chapters, he goes to one of the sort of immersion schools for people who are blind in America, which theoretically I think you're supposed to go to for like a year or two. And he's there for a couple of weeks, but they teach you like all of these skills and tools for how to navigate the world while blind from like cooking to getting around in public to all of this other stuff. So there's that kind of 
like first person journalism elements. And then he's also writing about the history of blindness treatments in America. He's writing about the politics of blindness activism. They're kind of two competing groups. He goes to conventions and, you know, talks to all of these people. And again, is like getting a sense of where the sort of state of activism and the sort of like political line. I think the main blindness activism group was kind of conservative for a long time, but they were also doing all of this good work to help blind people. So it was kind of this complicated situation. But I found this book particularly moving and fascinating because my grandmother has macular degeneration and got it when she was in, I think, her early 60s. I was quite young and became legally blind and, you know, could no longer drive, do all these various things. She's, you know, quite old now and still manages to, I would say, function in a pretty remarkable way for someone who is legally blind. Um, and she loves to watch tennis, which so I'm always like, you can see a decent amount because you can watch Wimbledon. <laughs> but um, that I think kind of gets to part of the point that he's making is that like the specifics of one person's experience is really difficult to communicate often. But a lot of the thesis of the book is just that like, this is an area that most people and also the government have just been like, we're not interested. I think there's a stat in here that says that 70% of blind people in America are unemployed. And obviously, there's huge financial hardship that comes with that. And the most provocative element of what he's arguing is basically that, like, I think, broadly speaking, we understand deafness to be a culture, right? Obviously, there can be challenges with that. And um, it is viewed as a disability. You know, there are many different components in terms of, like, accessibility and accommodation, you know, whether your family is largely deaf or whether you're the only person and, you know, whether you're just hard of hearing, my mother's hard of hearing as opposed to deaf. So like that is a different experience. But blindness is basically just seen as like this grand tragedy that is like ruins people's lives. And he basically is like, well, actually, people who are blind often don't see it that way and see that there are these like positive aspects in the same way that Deaf people would argue that they see the positive aspects of their own experience. And that sense of like a pride within the community or like a sense of value of the experience, um, I think is a really novel argument that I certainly hadn't encountered before. Yeah, it just totally sort of like reconfigured my whole conception of blindness as a social identity, but also the like massive political and governmental failures to help people who struggle with this in terms of like just not being able to make money and have a job. I think everyone should read this book. I think it's just like major. It's not difficult to read at all. It's like, I think he has done a lot of journalism. Like it's written like sort of like a bunch of long form articles. And uh, yeah, I just found it completely illuminating and just totally brilliant. Obviously there will be an audiobook that is better suited to people. So yeah, especially if you sort of, have vision impairment issues, if you have a family member who's blind, you know, anything like that, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. But honestly, I do think everybody should read it. So that is called The Country of the Blind by Andrew Leland. Well, my next one is a short recommendation because it's a short book. Um, it's nominated for the Hugo Award for Best Novelette this year by the author John Chu, not to be confused with the film director John M. Chu. You can actually read it online right now at Uncanny Magazine, but it has the wonderful title, If You Find Yourself Speaking to God, Address God with the Informal You. 
And um, I read this because it had an interesting title and you yeah. cannot tell from the title what it's about because what it is about is Superman. <laughs> it's told from the perspective of a Asian American jobbing musical theatre actor who likes to go to the gym a lot and he is just kind of living his life at the same time as as a Chinese American Superman figure becomes a superhero in America at the same time as there is a lot of anti-Asian racist attacks happening in America. So it's got this kind of political backdrop, but it is very much kind of a slice of life story in a way that reminded me a bit of kind of queer memoirs and memoir comics from the 90s. The character is also gay and I think implicitly asexual. Yeah, I just really enjoyed this one because superheroes are obviously this massively oversaturated genre, but this story is completely removed from the corporate franchise building of superheroes. And obviously there's like a million billion different remixes of Superman as a concept. And I think it takes a really precise line of thought to do that in a way that doesn't feel like it's really already been done. There's no need to go into any particular depth because you can just go and read the story, which will probably take you 15 minutes. But it definitely draws a lot of lines between, you know, the closet and superhero secret identities and just the idea of how people in real life might actually react to a figure like Superman appearing if he wasn't this very Caucasian figure as as he appears in uh, all of pop culture. Yeah, and it had a really nice kind of just like really normal guy seeming protagonist. And the thing that kind of I think encapsulates his attitude is that when the Superman character kind of appears as a public figure at the beginning of the story, he immediately just describes him as Tom of Finland guy and refers to him as Tom of Finland guy throughout the story. <laughs> That's so good. The comparison to the sort of like memoir comics from the 90s is so interesting in terms of like what two genres and forms that are the most opposite could you mash together? And it's that and superhero media. So yeah, I'm going to check that out too. That sounds that sounds really good. A good Tom of Finland joke is not to be missed, I feel. Though we've now all experienced it, but you know, it's, I respect that. Um, finally, our final recommendation does not need anyone's recommendation. The most discussed and discoursed book. <laughs> yeah. That's why I saved it for last. I was like, you know what? I'm gonna put the like book that needs needs our help at the top. We could put yellow face at the end. I just thought this book was really interesting. I have not kept up with much of the discourse because I just don't have the energy or mental bandwidth currently. But obviously it is always notable when a book acquires that level of attention because it doesn't happen very often. Have you read any of her other books? Actually, no, but I've been very aware of her career. Yeah, this was the first one for me, too. I am dying to read Babel, both because 19th century sort of like historical level of the fantasy twists is a drama that appeals to me. And also the fact that it's set in Oxford. I'm just like, well, I have to read this. But um, it's not on paperback yet. And I am not about to read like a 600 page novel in hardback. At the moment, my my arms are not strong enough. So I've been waiting on that. I first heard about her, I think, from one of the girls I've mentored, who was very much like, oh my god, she's so young and she's published so many books. And I was just like, what? And I looked her up and I was like, oh, she's very young. <laughs> it's one of those scenarios where when someone is like this famous and talented and cool seeming, it's everyone who's having a really negative opinion for her just needs to like, just take a little meditation retreat and make sure that you're not poisoned by envy. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, my 
teenager was definitely kind of just like odd. And like kind of envious, but in an odd way. But anyone over the age of 30, it's like meditation retreat time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I read this book. I, you know, got a, an early copy and read it before it came out. And I read it again in like a day. I mean, I completely inhaled it. I was totally into it. And then I would say my opinion sort of cooled a little bit after, although I still think the book is really good. But after it had been published, I went on Goodreads and looked at the reviews and was like, oh my god, like everyone needs to calm down. Jesus Christ. And it really was a lot of like personal invective against the author. Oh which boy. is not to say that there can't be legitimate criticism to this book. I don't think it's a perfect novel. But it reminded me a lot of the Sally Rooney phenomenon in terms of like young, skinny, attractive female author is like ridiculously successful at an early age. I mean, Sally Rooney was older than Rebecca Kong, but it's just gonna it's just gonna attract people who are bitter. And in this case, there was a lot of people sort of saying like, well, she could only write about her own experience. And there's a sort of stand-in character for her in the book named um, Athena Liu, who, who dies right at the beginning. And it's her material that the main character, who is white, kind of steals and then passes off as her own. And the Athena character is a horrible bitch. I was like, I don't think that she is, like, suggesting that she... I mean, there's literally an interview that came along with the book where she's like, she's my worst nightmare. Like, she's just, like, the thing I'm terrified of turning into, which I thought was really kind of fascinating and bold to be like, these are my deepest insecurities. Like, here's my worst self. Right. (laughs) Please go and discuss my worst self on Goodreads, horde (laughs) of strangers. (laughs) And so, so the concept of the book, which again, I'm sure everyone's familiar is, is that these authors are kind of college frenemies and the white author whose name is June is present when Athena, who is um, Chinese, just like dies in a total freak accident and she steals her manuscript. And the manuscript is about Chinese laborers during World War One, which is obviously like a very narrow historical topic and it hasn't been looked at by anyone so it's pretty rough and so she kind of edits it and does a bunch of research and then submits it to an agent and she's already had a book published but it was like not a big success one of the things i think is a bit silly about the book is that she's like my publisher wasn't supporting me at all i only sold a couple thousand copies and i'm like that's pretty good like that's that's (laughs) like most people publish and they're like uh goodbye to the 300 copies of this book that were sold partially to my cousins you know right exactly but i think where the book really succeeds is in the sense of the publishing industry just being like totally venal and the best part of the book i think is the chapter where she and this agent um or maybe it's the editor of the publishing house i can't remember are editing the book to basically make it more racist and less good. <laughs> and I was <laughs> I was reading this and just like clawing my face off. I mean, oh my god, it was so excruciating. It's just extremely familiar to me from like a film and TV perspective with studio yes. notes where it's like everything is coming in from like the devil himself. <laughs> yeah. And so she's sort of like, well... Like, not all the white characters should be bad. Like, why why don't we have this person be friendly? And then it's like, of course, when the book gets published, you have all these critics who are like, this is, like, why is this this book written this way? But it's, broadly speaking, well-received. And then she's sort of, like, changed her last name to her middle name. So she's publishing under Juniper Song and, like, has an ambiguous author photo. So everyone thinks that she's Asian. And then it all just kind of spirals. 
And I actually think the most successful element of satire in this book is not about the publishing industry. There are, you know, the occasional detail in there that isn't quite right. Um, I mentioned the sales of the character's first book, but of Twitter, which in a way is kind of going to be rapidly archaic, right? But the just like social media frenzy, the fear of being outed on social media because she's constructed this life that is a lie, but also just being embarrassed, which is more something that more of us can relate to, right? And her entire life like revolves around her phone in a way that is chilling. I was like, that's that's too close. And I think part of why this book has accumulated so much discussion is that HarperCollins, understandably, has marketed this as like the most important book of the year slash all time because they want to sell a lot of copies. And my experience reading it was that, again, I read it really, really fast. I think this is really entertaining and fun and like basically well written. I mean, I think it's very well written. It's just not trying to be like high literature, right? I think it's trying to be an entertaining satire. And I think it's a really interesting case of like, it's almost like a cinema score situation, right? Of like, the cinema score measures how satisfied the audience is based on what their expectations of a movie is going to be, not on how good the movie is. And it feels like some people were expecting this book to like, change publishing, which obviously isn't going to happen. Or to be like, I don't know, like a Booker Prize winner. And that's also not what this is. In a way, it's like a sensation novel from the Victorian era, right? Like, you read it really fast, it's really, really fun, and also makes you want to kind of, like, die. <laughs> I do think it's interesting, like, she's so young, and she's published so many books already. It would be interesting to see what would happen if she would, like, take a little time with the next one to sort of, like, fine-tune it. But I am sure the publishers are like, how fast could you get us that next manuscript? Because your books are selling like hotcakes. So, you know. But yeah, it just feels like in a way that a lot of what she's critiquing about publishing has kind of been reenacted in the marketing of the book. And also the sense of them being like, we're so proud to publish a book about how racist we are. <laughs> like, isn't that so amazing? <laughs> I mean, the past year, especially of like every publishing industry person, like I follow on social media, just telling the most nightmarish stories of low pay and discrimination and horrible foul little nepotism bullies at every strata level you know well and penguin random house just laid off a ton of people i think harper collins shuttered an imprint it is bad up there like it is not a good situation and part of what's been interesting about reading all of these galleys is that there's just no correlation whatsoever between what gets the marketing push and what is actually good, which is depressing. But there also is clearly a lot of really good stuff being written. It's just that it's kind of being buried, I think, um, in most cases. And I'm even more impressed by the authors who managed to get this good stuff out there because everything is conspiring against them. I just don't know how people can write things under, <laughs> under these circumstances. You just got to be like, for the love of the game... <laughs> I'm really curious to see what's going to happen because obviously we have these strikes happening in Hollywood as a result of this situation just becoming untenable. And I feel like it really is untenable in publishing right now as well. And there isn't an equivalent union structure to push back against no. it. But I, I just feel like it's going to hit a wall at some point. One thing I, I do think is valuable, I haven't done this, but I'm going to with a couple of these books, and I did last year with a couple of books I really loved. It's like, if you just really love a book and think it's great, you should just email the fucking author. Unless they're really famous and can't be reached, in which case, leave them alone. Like, Rebecca Cog does not need to be emailed. She is fine. Don't harass her. But, like, some of these books, 
they're not getting a lot of attention. And it really matters to people to be told that someone cared about their work. I sent a couple emails when I was really sick last year um, and was just listening to audiobooks. I listened to a couple like really good history books and emailed the authors and they were just like so happy. <laughs> and I was like, you know, everyone likes to be told they've done a nice job. So that's kind of my recommendation to people. Like we can't fix publishing right now, but at least we can tell the authors that they, like they, they wrote a good book. Yeah, um, as always, thanks for reading. Thanks everyone who is supporting us on Patreon where Morgan and I, as I said, do a couple of these book episodes each year. And obviously we're doing fairly regular, like basically monthly Patreon only episodes. You can find us at patreon.com overinvested podcast. And we are going to do like a listener Q&A at some point in the next few weeks. So if you've got any questions for us, send them over and we will do a Patreon episode answering them. So ask us anything, but particularly about like movies and books, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) And as always, you can find us overinvestedpodcast.com, the main feed where I'm continuing to do episodes every two weeks with co-hosts Stefan and Claire. And also you can find us Overinvested Podcast at Tumblr, Overinvested Pod at Twitter, Overinvested Podcast at Instagram. And you can find me probably still at Twitter slash x.com. I mean, <laughs> fuck's sake. A hello underscore Taylor and on Blue Sky at Gavia and also Letterboxed Hello Taylor. I'm not on Twitter anymore. I'm not doing Twitter. I can't deal with it. Um, but I am on Blue Sky at ML Davies. If you want to follow me over there on Instagram at Morgan Lee Davies and um, also on Letterboxd at ML Davies. Just to, to reiterate the thanks to everyone who has been listening to the main feed and especially subscribing on Patreon. Um, I really appreciate it, obviously. And so does everyone involved in the podcast. So um, yeah, thanks so much to everybody and have a good rest of your summer since I think this will be the only time that I am on the main feed for a few months. So thanks everybody. Bye. Bye.